0: hope you're ready to spend some time in God's Word this morning and and see what He has to teach us. We're we're coming down very quickly to the conclusion of our study of the book of Nehemiah. So we've we've been in it for for almost a year and we're, we're coming to the end of it. This series that we've titled Building for the Future, we just have a few messages left. So we're back in chapter 13 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there with me. Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14 in our time together today. Now as I, as I laid out last Sunday, if, if you didn't happen to be here and you missed that, you can go back and, and listen to that. But assuming you were here, you remember that, that chapter 13 is a letdown chapter compared to what had been the tra- tra- trajectory of this book. Because up until this final section, this, this final chapter, everything for the most part had been building in a positive direction. And they had been doing the right things. They had been making the right decisions until they didn't. And that's, that's where we find ourselves. That's what chapter 13 is all about. The regression of the children of Israel in, the, in their walk with, with God, they had been you know, again, headed in the right direction, and now some things changed, and backsliding had began, starting with Eliashib, the high priest. And we learned last Sunday that it was, it was because of a simple compromise. But we know that, that compromise is a dangerous proposition. It's subtle, but it's also significant. The Bible calls it evil, compares it to the spirit of Antichrist. But there is a solution, and it's getting back to what God's Word says and aligning your life with that book and responding to what you find that is related to your life and to your situation. So and I told you last week that the model that God gives us and, 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 and patterns in the Bible, you know, once you see them, you know, you begin to see them everywhere. And it's such a cool thing. But, but you know, the pattern for, for using the word of God in your life, read, research, respond. Right? Because we need to read the Bible. The Bible actually says that. That, that we should read. But, but then, you know, what they did, what the children of Israel did last week, is they found a, a, some passages very specific to what they were dealing with. And so, you know, if, if you're dealing with something, there's some research that's involved to go find, what does the Bible say about your situation? Because it does have something to say. And then when you find it, you need to respond to it. You need to do what it says. It's really pretty simple. Uh, sometimes we just, don't, we just don't follow the pattern. We, we pick our own ways and decide to go our own routes. But if we would just follow the way God lays it out, we'd have much greater success. But that was last week. And in that sermon, we looked at compromise in general. And, and again, how it infiltrates our lives, our homes, and this church. But today, I want to focus on Nehemiah. I want to focus on Nehemiah and the leadership skills he displayed in dealing with this compromise, you see, again, we talked about this last week, but by the time we get to chapter 13, Nehemiah had returned to Babylon. So he had received leave from the king there in Persia uh, to, to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild and, and do all of that work that we, we've seen throughout this book. But, but that job was done. His job was complete. They had rebuilt the walls and gates. They had reestablished the Jewish culture community within the city. The people were built up. They were established. Again, they were on the right path. And, and he goes back because he had just taken a leave to get this job done, and, and he did what God had for him. But it wasn't long after his return to Babylon that he heard of Israel's regression. So he, he determined that it was necessary to go back to Jerusalem and set some things straight. And that's what he does. When he returns, he takes swift action. And we began to see that last week. We'll look at a couple of those verses again. But the action that he takes is a great example for us of of someone exhibiting good leadership skills. And I want to dive into that a little deeper today because the steps he takes give us some clues and how we can be good leaders even and you say you know listen i'm i'm not a leader i'm i'm still in school i'm not married whatever listen at a minimum you're a leader of your own life so this applies to everybody and and plus the 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 traits we're going to see today just i mean they're just good traits to be a good christian but we're all looking and and to lead somebody we we're all in positions of leadership at some level again even if that is just our own life. So I've titled this message, Last Days Leadership. Because again, we've made the comparison to the days of Nehemiah and how they compare to the days of today. And I do believe, we talk about this a lot around here, that we're living in the last days. And so now more than ever do we need to be leaders like Nehemiah in this church, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, and again, in our own lives. Because what you see throughout Scripture is that without spiritual leadership— God's people are prone to stray like sheep. If we don't stay on top of ourselves, you know, we are prone to stray. There's, there's, that, there's that hymn, come thou fount. You know, and there's, there's a, a verse in there, you know, prone, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And he says, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. And seal it for thy courts above. And I think that's true of all of us. We don't stay on top of ourselves. We, we just get complacent and we get apathetic and we are prone to wander, And we're prone to leave the God I love. That is human nature. It's no coincidence that the regression of the children of Israel occurred after Nehemiah left Jerusalem. And again, you see this situation regularly in Scripture. Moses was away from the people of Israel for 40 days. And in that short time, they became idolaters. <laughs> In Exodus 32, verse 1, and he had gone up to, to, to be with the Lord, and the Lord gives him the tables of testimony. And in Exodus 32, 1 it says, And when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. I mean, that seemed to escalate kind of quickly. I mean, they are just written him off. It's like, well, I don't think he's coming back. He's gone. Probably never going to see him again. is kind of cold-blooded. But this principle is true in the New Testament as well. We, we see examples of where Paul establishes a church, gets things set up, leaves it in the hands of the elders only to have trouble soon after his departure. And he would have to write them a letter or, or take them and pay them a visit to get them straightened back out. Listen to what he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. He says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, listen, not I think this or this is probably gonna happen. He says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And this is exactly what Nehemiah was dealing with in Jerusalem. He leaves, and some of the leaders within were wolves. And they, they rose up. Because it, it turns out they weren't really spiritually minded leaders. And that is what we need today. Today, more than ever, we need spiritually-minded people. We need spiritually-minded leaders. We need it from all of you. Do you lead your home and your family from a spiritual starting point, with a spiritual focus? I I talk over and over. You've heard me throughout this series talk over and over about the importance of instilling a biblical worldview into our children. You're going to continue to hear me talk about it over and over. And, ju- and just in case you don't know or are unaware, this is what a worldview is. A worldview is simply a framework from which we view reality and make sense of life in the world. It's just a framework from which we view reality and make sense of this life and of this world. So, so for example, a two-year-old believes that he or she is the center of the world. Right? They have a very self-centered worldview. And that everybody is there to please them. You know, a secular humanist believes that the material world is all that exists. That there's no afterlife, there's no deity. So the goal of life is to live for yourself, to get what you can, while you can. But someone with a biblical worldview believes that his or her primary reason for existence is to glorify and serve God. And... The basis instruction for how we do that is given to us by God through his infallible word. That is a biblical worldview. That our our sole primary reason for our existence is to worship the Lord, is to serve him, is to glorify him with our life, and we do that by living this book. He told us exactly how to do it. And that's, that's what a biblical worldview is. And that's what we need to be teaching our children. But here's the kicker. You have to do that by word and deed. By what you say and by what you do, how you live. Because, you know, as, as dumb as kids can be sometimes, no offense, they're still pretty smart. And they'll pick up on you saying one thing and doing something different. And if your life doesn't match your words and your instruction, they're going to know it. Listen, we can only fool the people in our house, you know, for, for, for so long. So we all need to be the leader that God is calling us to be. And listen, that, that's not perfect. There's no such thing. We're all going to make mistakes along the way. We're all going to stumble along the way. There's no such thing as a perfect Christian outside of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as a, a, a you know, we We know that there's no such thing even as sinless perfection, and and we're going to stumble and we're going to struggle, but there's a difference in not being perfect and being fake and being a hypocrite. There's a difference in that. So listen, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be weird about it, but we just can't be fake. We have to believe it. And we have to live our lives the best that we can, according to what God has to say. You can't fake it and make it with this stuff. It doesn't work that way. So let's learn from Nehemiah this morning how to be a good, spiritually-minded leader. And we're going to see three traits that I believe are crucial in the day and age, especially in the day and age in which we live, to be that type of leader and establish a biblical worldview in your home and in, in this church in these last days. So we're going to read verses 10 through 14, and then we'll get into our study. Nehemiah chapter 13. Verse ten, the Bible says, And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, for the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. Then contended I with the rulers, and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place, then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil unto the treasuries, and I made treasurers over the treasuries. Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah, And next to them was Hanan the son of Zachor, the son of Mataniah. For they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Right, let's pray. And then we'll get into our study this morning, dear Heavenly Father. Um, as always, Lord, we are so thankful to to be gathered together this morning, just to have the opportunity to do this, and Lord, to lift praises to you, to acknowledge who you are and and all that you deserve. You are deserving of all of the and more of the praise that you get, and the honor and the glory. And so, Lord, pre- please be glorified in this place today, in all that we do, in in our our offering of praise as we get into your word, as we listen and are sensitive to the Holy Spirit to make the changes that we need to make according to to what your word has to say. Be glorified in all of it, Lord. Teach us as your Holy Spirit only he can do, and Lord, use it in our lives. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word and, again, that it's honoring to you and you're glorified through it. Lord, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, before we get into these specific leadership traits that, that I want to show you this morning, I want to make sure that we understand the context of what's going on and remind you of, of what we talked about last week. And we've already talked about some of that. But when Nehemiah returned from Babylon, he found that Eliashib had been allowed, the, their arch, he had allowed their arch enemy, Tobiah, to move into the temple. Right? And this didn't set very well with him, as, as it shouldn't have. And like I already told you, he took swift action. This is what we saw last week. But let's look at it again. Go back to verse 8, Nehemiah chapter 13. So he hears that Tobiah is living in the temple. He's got a room made for him. And it says, It grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. And so he came in. And he kicks Tobiah out and he just starts chucking stuff out of the temple. I, I told you last week that he pulled a Jesus before Jesus. But, but there's a reason for that. There's a picture there. Because even similar language is used. Look at, look at when Jesus does, it, does this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Because we see that Nehemiah cast forth all the household stuff. And, and this says Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. So in this way, and certainly in this chapter, and we looked at at some of the prophecy, the doctrinal application last week, but in this chapter for sure, Nehemiah is is absolutely a picture of Jesus. And so the traits that we're going to look at are good ones. They were traits that Jesus displayed as well, and it starts with, with being willing to stand for truth. So this is quite simple. And, and that's what this message is going to be. It is going to be very simple and very straightforward. But it covers some things that are difficult for some of us. So don't tune it out over its simplicity. So we see that Nehemiah was clearly upset. He throws Tobiah and all his stuff out of the temple. But listen, he had a good reason And it was because what was happening in the temple was directly against God's word. And this is important to understand because he wasn't upset that that what they were doing was against some rules that he had set up, it wasn't some man made rules that he had established that he didn't like. He wasn't even mad because they had done something to him personally, he was upset because truth had been offended. Because as part of allowing Tobiah into the temple, it meant something had to go out. That was verse 10. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled, everyone to his field. You see, the room that Tobiah was occupying was meant to hold the meat offerings for the Levites and the singers and everyone who did the work at the temple. And, and just so you know, meat offerings in the Bible don't actually include meat from animals. It's the meat of the field. It's the corn and the oil that we see, the wine, in verse 12. But, but the point is, it was reserved space to take care of the temple workers. And since the room wasn't available, these offerings weren't being collected. And the temple workers weren't being cared for the way God intended. In fact... They had to leave the temple and go work the fields so that they and their family could eat. That's what the end of verse 10 says. They've returned unto those fields. So the temple work was being neglected. And the book of Malachi actually talks about this exact same thing. And, And we don't always necessarily think about and consider the chronological order of the books of the Bible. But Malachi covers the same time period as Nehemiah. So, so just in case you aren't aware, and, and if you aren't aware, it's fine, but so that you will be aware, the books of the Bible are not found in chronological order. They're found in, in what we would say as dispensational order, all right, based on the doctrines and the, the, the dispensations and, and the prophetic applications um, of the order of the Bible. So there is a perfect order to the canon of Scripture. It's just not chronological. So the book of Job, for example, is widely considered to be the oldest, chronologically, the oldest book. Well, it's obviously not first. And there's a reason why Genesis is first. It tells the creation story, and it, tells, it gives us the, the pattern for nearly everything we see through the rest of the Bible. So we have Malachi and Nehemiah found in different parts of the Bible, both Old Testament, but Nehemiah, actually on the, kind of the first half, You know, towards the end of the first half of the Old Testament. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. But they're covering the same time period. And so Malachi was prophesying when the events of Nehemiah were were occurring. And so this will help you place verses like Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, that says, "Will a man rob God, yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with the curse. For ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, as there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, and there shall, that there shall be room, not, not room enough to receive it. And what Malachi was talking about was what was going on in Nehemiah chapter 13. So, so for many reasons, obviously, we can't apply like the Malachi verses to us as the church. I mean, they have a very specific context a doctrinal context and a historical context and this is it and what Malachi and Nehemiah were talking about was a serious issue because it was in direct violation of the law Deuteronomy 12 verse 19 says take heed to thyself that thou forsake not the Levite as long as thou livest upon the earth this was uh, commanded in the law that they were to take care of the Levites the priests, and the temple workers it was also a direct violation to the covenant that the children of Israel had made in chapter 10. In Nehemiah 10, verse 39, it says, For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn and of the new wine and the oil under the chambers, where are the vessels of the sanctuary and the priests that minister and the porters and the singers. And we will not forsake the house of our God. That's the promise they made. That is the covenant they made back in chapter 10. So Nehemiah's displeasure and his disgust was a stand for and on truth. And we should have that same quality inside of us. This is a a leadership quality. Now, we could take this point a a lot of different directions. We could even probably use it to justify some actions that aren't necessarily biblical. But I want to start we're going to make a couple applications, but I'm going to start by making the application personal this morning, because we all deal with things. This, this life brings us a certain amount of displeasure and disgust, and we have to deal with things throughout our days living in this world. We all have things happen to us that we don't like, and, and we're usually okay to let our feelings be known when that happens, and, and that's okay. That is certainly not sinful in and of itself. It can be, depending on our attitude, but, but not automatically. But, but the problem I have is that while many folks are willing to stand for themselves when they've been wronged and when they've been offended, at the same time, they're much w- less willing to stand for truth. And much less willing to combat sin and confront sin that is in their own life. You see, most of us, myself included, can be easily offended personally when something is done to us. But on the flip side, we're usually pretty easy on ourselves when something is done by us. And I want to challenge that way of thinking this morning when we look at these points and take, like, To take a stand for truth, I want us to look internally first and say, listen, there is truth that applies to our life. Are, when we are offending truth in our life, are we taking action? Are we stepping up and saying, you know what, I'm wrong. I need to stand on what the word of God has to say. So I want to challenge this, this thinking that where we're soft on and, and and hard on others, I want us to consider how we are treating the temple of God when we are the offenders. You know, most of you know if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith in him, his finished work on the cross, that God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit lives inside you. Right? There's plenty of verses we could go to. Romans 8, verse 9 is one such example. It says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. There's, the Spirit of God does dwell inside a believer in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom you have also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. At that very moment of salvation, this is something we teach in our, in our discipleship one, our personal discipleship that Craig had talked about this morning. The whole, at the point we receive Christ for our salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in, inside our spirit. Our spirit is made alive. It's quickened, according to Ephesians chapter 2. We have lost people going back to the garden. We have a, a dead spirit Until Christ quickens us, until Christ makes us alive. And he seals us in that process. And we're now God's habitation on this earth, each one of us. And when we join collectively as the body of Christ, we make up that temple. But that means every Christian here has a part in the care and the working of the temple. We are the church. We are his body. So how are you personally treating it? Is there something in your life that you need to take a stand against, take a stand upon? Do you have rooms that are set aside for evil? Or or maybe better said, do you have some of your time, talents, or treasure that should be going to God But instead, that's a room that's set aside for the world. Hold yourself accountable. Stand on the truth of God's word and apply it to your life. That is the personal application. But also, there are times when we need to take a stand and stand on the truth of God's word because someone else is wrong. That's what Nehemiah was doing. Paul did this. Many times in his letters. That's basically the entire book of 1 Corinthians that we studied a couple years ago. And we know that Paul was willing to do this and just stay true to God's word. And even when it was people that he loved, he is willing to tell them. We know that Paul stood up to Peter because he was treating the Gentiles differently whenever his Jewish friends, Jewish brethren were around. And in Galatians 2.11, Paul said, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, again, it was because truth was offended. It wasn't because that he was personally offended. It wasn't because it was rules that he had set up. No, it was because he was, he was going against what the Bible had to say. And listen, I understand this is hard Sometimes. But you need to know this morning, there are some things that are worth standing for. And it's the things in this book. Jude, verses 3 and 4, says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of that common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort unto you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the sins. Why? Why do we need to earnestly contend? For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we need to contend for the faith? Because truth is being offended. And the word contend that Jude uses is the same word that Nehemiah uses. In Nehemiah 13, 11. Then contended I with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? It's the same thing that... And back in 10, verse 39, they said, you know what? We're not going to forsake the house of our God. And Nehemiah is coming in saying, why are you forsaking the house of our God? You've forsaken it. God gave you clear commands. You made a clear promise to live according to his word, according to his law. And now you're not. Why are you forsaking the house of God? And the word contend means to struggle. It means to grapple. And sometimes you have to be willing to get your hands dirty and have difficult conversations. And that can be a struggle. Uh, It's not always easy. Like, I, I don't like it. When I have to do it, I don't like it. And many times, the easier path is just to go along to get along. And... And, you know, I mean, whatever. People are willing to, you know, contend on Facebook or whatever. No, that, that's silliness. And that doesn't, that doesn't do any good. I mean, I get it. There wasn't Facebook when Paul wrote Galatians. I understand that. But there's a principle there that he withstood him to his face. And, and being able to talk man to man, woman to woman about these things. And, and Nehemiah was a leader that was willing to do that for the right reasons, for truth's sake. And, and, and unfortunately, not everyone is. Um, but listen, and, and, and here's, here's why I want to make this application. If you're going to lead your life, if you're going to lead your family, lead a church, this church, especially in these last days that are so contrary to truth, At some point, you're going to have to take a stand. It's inevitable. Or or, or you're not going to be a last days leader like Nehemiah. So just so you know, if you haven't already, you will be faced with it. Especially when we consider our homes. And we consider what our kids are dealing with out there in this world. And when they have questions... And they're faced with things they don't know how to place. And, and the world is telling them one thing. And, and, and trust me, there is an agenda out there to grab our kids. And they're absolutely dealing with it and facing it. And when they're contending with that and working their way through it, what instruction are you giving? Are you standing on the truth of God's word? Even when that's contrary to what everybody else is saying? Are you willing to instill that biblical worldview and just you trust that where that takes you, God's going to be with you? Because, again, if you haven't dealt with it already, you're going to deal with it. But this is nothing new. I mean, again, this goes back. Moses gone 40 days, spending time with the Lord, and he comes back and they're all idolaters. They've made a golden calf. And then if you can't follow that chapter, I just want to show you Exodus 32, 26. So Moses has to confront. And it says, and then Moses stood in the gate in the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And, you know, I, I, I like to say, like in this verse, you know, M- Moses drew the proverbial, you know, line in the sand. And said, you know, who's on the Lord's side? Come unto me. And you see this throughout Scripture. I mean, this, this happens a lot. and, and the, Because the fact is, there is a right side and there is a wrong side. There is. And that's why Moses said it, who's on the Lord's side? And so it's up to you which side you're going to take. It's up to you if you're going to go along to get along. It's up to you if you're willing to hold to this book and say, you know, no, no, little Johnny, that's wrong. You can't do that. You don't get to make that decision. Because I know what God has, and I know what God wants out of you. Listen, there's, there's, a, there's a time to stand for the truth. But that's not all that Nehemiah did with this. He, he didn't just take a stand. He goes on, and, and this is our second leadership trait. And that you must be willing to steward the treasure. So stand for truth. Next, you need to be willing to steward the treasure. This is the next action that Nehemiah took. He threw Tobiah his stuff out, and then he began to set things back in place. To set things in order. To set things right. Look at verse 12 of Nehemiah 13. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine, and the oil under the treasury. So he makes the room back available again. He's like, all right, we're going to fill it up. We're going to do what God says. And I made treasurers over the treasuries Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Matzaniah, for they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. So he sets some new guys in charge. And he's like, okay, the room's clear. We're bringing all the tithes and the offerings back in. You guys are the treasurers of the treasury. You got to make sure. this happens, and you are are responsible for distributing the goods unto the brethren. That was their office. That was their job. And so this is interesting. Nehemiah puts these treasurers over the treasuries, over the corn, the wine, the oil. Now, not owners, but treasurers. And treasurer means steward. They were steward or managers. And they were in charge of the distribution of the tithes to the temple workers. And he lists these four guys, and and we'll come back to them in just a minute. But he tells us that he picked them for one reason. Why? Because they were kind of faithful. And faithfulness is the key characteristic of a steward, of a treasurer. I mean, mean, first of all, the treasurer has the aspect of resources. Steward is control of resources. You have to be able to trust someone. Who's in control of resources, right? We think of treasurer today related to money. Well, I mean, there's a reason why. It's related to the resources that go in, in helping and buying and purchasing. Well, you obviously have to be able to trust someone that's in control of all that. Well, Paul tells us this, even with the treasure of God's word. There's a key aspect to, to someone that's been given that stewardship. And that's found in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required as stewards that a man be found what? Faithful. Faithful. So you must get this. Because faithfulness is such a key to life and to glorifying God. We've talked about this quite a bit in this study. But being available for God to use... Is so crucial. Showing up is crucial. Be a faithful to steward what God's given you is crucial, because most don't. Proverbs 26 says, Most men will proclaim every one his own goodness, but a faithful man, who can find? And that's a rhetorical question, because that's a difficult proposition. Psalm 12.1 expresses a similar sentiment. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, ceaseth for the faithful fail from among the children of men. So these four guys were put in charge because they were counted faithful. And for, you know, just since we announced MTT and LFBI and all that, for all you up-and-coming MTT and LFBI students, please take note of that last sentence. That they were put in charge because they were faithful. Luke 16.10, Jesus speaking, says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. So these guys were put in charge of managing God's resources. But here's the thing. Again, they knew that they were the managers and not the owners. You see, that was the pro- that's what a steward is. A steward is a manager. That was the problem with Eliashib. He thought he got to make all the decisions about the temple. That he owned it. No, God's word made all the decisions for him. He was just to manage what the owner instructed. And many of the spiritual problems we face in this life is because we forget that we are the manager of our life. And we think we are the owner. And so, we, so because of that, we'll tend to divide out you know, the spiritual and the secular and think, okay, well, you know, this stuff belongs to God, but, but, but this stuff is mine, right? I mean, this, doesn't have, this isn't anything spiritual. This is secular, so it doesn't have anything to do with God. This belongs to me. Well, listen, that, that's, just a, that's just a wrong frame of reference. That's just a, a wrong starting point. There's Bible verse after Bible verse that confirms that God is the owner of all. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord thy God, the earth also, and all that therein is. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. This is even more so should apply it if you're a Christian, because if you're a Christian, that means you've been bought. Not only are you a part of the creation, God sent his son to die for you, and when you accepted that sacrifice, he literally bought you with the blood of his son. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, For ye are bought with a the price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And when you understand that, the decisions you make regarding your time, talents, and treasure, they reflect that. And even the, you know, the quote-unquote secular things of your life are at least viewed through the prism of the spiritual, because, again, this gets back to your, your worldview. What, how, what do you view? How do you make sense of what life is about? The reason for your existence. What, how do you view that? And if you believe that, that it's because God is, is there to receive our worship and glory, and he tells us exactly how to do that in this book, then you're going to view everything through that lens and again that, that that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect it doesn't mean that you have to be weird about it you there's still we still live in this world we're able to enjoy the things of this world and and you know I enjoy golfing whatever it might be that doesn't mean it's like oh I have to I have to say well man I, you know I can't golf because that's not spiritual well no what I have to do is I just have to consider okay well I only have so much money so I can only do it so much so many times but you know am I maybe I can talk to someone while we're out there, whatever. I just have a spiritual frame that I start from to be able to navigate life. It goes back to the biblical worldview. It goes back to whether, therefore, you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So does that describe your life? I hope it does because, listen, here's where this applies to Nehemiah. You, me, we have been made the treasurer of a treasure, treasurer of the treasury, because we have a treasure in us. So we need to be faithful and spiritual-minded because we don't want to make the wrong decisions as a treasurer. God's counting on us to be faithful. God's counting on us to distribute his resources the way he's commanded us to. And listen, this applies to every Christian that has ever lived, every Christian in this room, because Nehemiah made four guys the, the treasurers. And in that group, there was a priest, a scribe, a Levite, and a layman. Different groups, different roles, but all were stewards of the treasure of God, picturing there's, there's room for everybody. This applies to everybody. It's for all of us. And, and, and look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 tell us. Paul says, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. And ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. But look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We have this treasure in us. And guess what? We're the treasurer of that treasury. And that treasure of verse 7 is the light of verse 6. Now, light, of course, is, verse Christ, is of course Christ. Colossians 1.27 is more direct in describing this treasure. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have Christ in us. There's a light. There's a treasure of this light that Paul describes that's in us. And that tre- that's the treasure. But those earthen vessels, that's you and me. More specifically, it's our bodies. Congratulations. You're just a regular old earthen vessel. And we come by it honestly enough because we know that Adam was originally made out of the clay and the mud, the dust of the ground. Man, is earthen. And let's face it, that term, it, it, is, it, it isn't even very complimentary. It's not that flattering. He didn't say, you know, you're a vase. You know, you're you 're a pitcher no you 're an earthen vessel, and it 's because there is nothing good in us until the treasure is in us and I want you to understand what i 'm saying because because we are an indirect creation of God, so we 're part of god 's creation we 're indirect because he, you know Adam was a direct creation of God we 're an indirect creation of God, and according to psalm one nineteen or psalm one thirty nine verse fourteen We've been fearfully and wonderfully made. Like, I think we understand that. And it's so true, right? When you think about the intricacies of our human body, and, you know, this is what just blows my mind, the people that believe in evolution. Look at the human body and the intricacies involved, and, you know, come on. That is just so ridiculous. But it's amazing, the science of the human body. It is amazing, and it is incredible. But it is not good And and the reason why it is not good is because it does not come with inherent righteousness. We only gain that in Christ. So yes, your bodies are amazing. They are incredible. The, The way God designed in our DNA, it's unbelievable. And it's still just a plain old earthen vessel. Especially as you compare us to the treasure. We just hold it. But that means that even though we're just the steward, we're supposed to be faithful. And we control how much that treasure shines. So when you get saved, you are to empty yourself so that you can hold the treasure of the light of Christ in you. When you get saved, you invite Jesus to come live inside you. So that means you got to make room. you got to make space. You have to move out of the way. But that's not all. In order to fully display your Savior, you have to be broken, surrendered, just like Christ was on the cross. You see, if the light is in this earthen vessel, for that light to show, there has to be cracks. And when the cracks and the light shine from that cracks, everyone is going to know that the excellency of the power emanating from you is actually him and it's not you. So listen, friend. There are a lot of you out there that are saved. And you have the treasure inside you. But the truth is, no one can see it. And you might even be super talented and might have all sorts of abilities. And you might even think because of that, that the church ought to be using you more. Listen, none of that matters. Do you know what matters? What matters is the kind of steward of the treasure you are. When we look at you, do we see him or you? As the treasurer of the treasury, are you distributing his resources? Are you distributing that light the way he wants? Or do you feel like the owner? So you get to make your own decisions. Listen, you're just a steward. You're just a manager. So be faithful in that job. But really, you can only do that if you have the right focus. If you understand and believe that concept of ownership and management. And that brings us to the third leadership trait that we see in Nehemiah. And that's his ability to see the target. And this, is, this gets to the focus of why we do what we do and who we do it for. And we get to see Nehemiah's focus in verse 14. This is another one of his quick quick, quick prayers. He says, remember me, oh, oh my God. And this is just such a... a, a A swift transition, right? He's doing all this stuff and he makes these guys and then he takes the time out to to pray this very interesting prayer. Remember me, O my God, concerning this and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Now, Nehemiah, he's gonna say this prayer, very similar prayer a couple more times in verses 22 and 29 of this chapter. We'll see that. We also saw this back in chapter five. He said a very similar prayer in Nehemiah 5, 19. He said, think upon me, my God, for good. according to all that I have done for this people. And these are very specific prayers that show Nehemiah's heart, that show his sole focus, his sole target of of all the actions, everything he did was to please the Lord. It was to please the Lord. This is very personal to him. He says, my God, twice in this prayer. There's a personal aspect to that relationship. But here's what's interesting, at least to me. Nehemiah was not pleading for God's physical blessings. He wasn't even pleading for the people of Israel to change, as interesting as that that might be. His sights were set on an eternal reward for himself. He said, remember me. Think on me when that day comes, when I stand before you. And the, the point is that Nehemiah didn't care about this life. He was doing what he was doing on this life for what was to come. He was focused. His target was set above. And beyond that, he wasn't, and and this is going to sound interesting, but let me explain it. He wasn't even pleading based upon his own merit. And I know that sounds weird based upon the actual prayer. But here's why I say that. Because look at the next time he prays this prayer, down in verse 22. It's at the end of the verse. He says, remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. You see, Nehemiah knew that Even his good deeds didn't merit God's reward, but he also knew about God's mercy. And he was pleading based on that. God, listen, God is so good to us. God is so merciful to us. He's so merciful that he'll even remember our good deeds while forgetting our bad. Or at least covering them with the blood of his son. So listen, that is the target. The target of everything we do just should be God, God himself, and God's mercy upon us. He doesn't have to reward us. For the things that we do, how we live this, does he owe us something? Does he owe us eternal rewards? Does he owe us an eternity with him? Does he owe us anything? No. But he's merciful. And he shows us that mercy. And, you know, and some people, if you read, they'll, they'll say that, that this prayer was even selfish of Nehemiah. I don't think it is at all. I think it's a wonderful, beautiful expression of worship and humility, actually. And, and his belief in, in what God was going to do. Because in this entire book, Nehemiah never, saw, never once, we've been through the whole study, we're up to the, almost the last few verses, he never once sought the praise of, of, of all the people. He always asked for God, for God's That's all he wanted. That's what he wanted. And, and he, listen, it, he didn't even care. I mean, I'm sure he did, but we don't read where he, he cares if, if they appreciated him or if it ticked them off. Listen, I'm sure he ticked Eliashib off. I'm sure they weren't BFFs, you know, after Nehemiah chapter 13. But Nehemiah knew the only assessment that mattered was the Lord's. And he was asking the Lord to keep a record of his faithful service. He was saying, Lord, you know. You know what I've done for the people, and you know why I've done it. And I want you to notice. And we've talked about this. We talked about this when we went through chapter 3. But I want to remind you of this because it's, it's so good. That beyond a shadow of a doubt, God will not forget your service as done for his glory. I love Hebrews 6.10. It says, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. Which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. What a what an awesome promise that is, man. And a, a promise that I'll cling to even when times get tough. Because there are times. That, that if this is inevitable life. There are times that that we are down. There are times that we don't feel appreciated. That happens to every single person in this room. That is human nature. The, you don't have to even feel bad about that. We Listen, there is something in us that, that wants the praise of man, that wants to feel good about it, that wants acknowledgement. There's no need to lie about it. I like that too. But at the end of the day, here's the thing. Your acknowledgement of me is only worth the encouragement in the moment. And I'm not saying that's nothing. That is actually something. It's worth something. But... If that's my target, to be encouraged in that moment, then I'm shooting woefully short. And as cool as it is for you to acknowledge me, I want God to do it. I want him. I want, the, I want Hebrews 6.10. I want to cling to that promise. That's the hope I have. And, and I've, I've told you this. I've, this next sentence I stole from, I said this when we went through uh, Nehemiah chapter 5, but I'm going to say it again. And it's that church history is full of men and women who gave the best years of their life, some who even gave their life, and we've never heard of them. Gave their life to the Lord and all that they had, and we have no clue of who they are and what they did. But you know what? God knows. And He's not unrighteous to forget. What a promise! Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 38, talks about this group. Women received their dead, raised to life again. This is a chapter on the heroes of the faith. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, from whom the world was not worthy. Man, that's, that's so stinking awesome. They wandered in the deserts and in the mountains and in the dens and in the caves of the earth. And we don't know any of their names. But I can tell you that today they're all saying it was worth it. Because God remembers. It's like Nehemiah asked him to. He will remember. Remember me, O oh God. He will remember you. He will remember your service. Listen, as long as you have some. Can you you honestly, before the Lord, make that request? Can you say, remember me, all the stuff that I've done, all the stuff I did for your house, Lord, remember that. Is that a prayer you can pray? Because if if you give him nothing to remember, then what can he do? Serve the Lord today while you have chance. We're coming to the end. This is last day's leadership stuff. So quit giving yourself excuses for why you're not serving him. No, stay tight with us, especially now. I mean, that's the context of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25, talking about not, you know, let us hold fast the profession of faith without wavering. For he is faithful to promise, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Romans 13, Paul says in that, knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Those, if you don't think those verses apply to us today, it's time for, to, for you to see and set the right target. It's time to start living your life for his glory and for his attention. Who cares about the world's attention? It's not worth anything. Even our attention. Wow, that can be worth a little. It's not that much. It's just for the moment. His attention is ultimately what matters. And those are the leadership traits we see in Nehemiah. And those are the leadership traits we need in our homes. So leadership traits we need in this church. It's the leadership traits we need in our lives, especially in these last days. We need to stand for truth against ourselves or anyone who offends the truth of God's word. Be courageous. Be willing to contend. Don't let the world into your house. And let's not let it into this church. And then be a steward of the treasure. Understand the issue of ownership and management and manage God's resources properly. He lives inside us. That's the treasure. Can people see him in you? Or do they just see you? What are you doing with that treasure? And third, see the target that everything we're doing, it's, it, if we're doing it for the Lord, for his glory, it's going to be rewarded. And that's not even necessarily the best reason. Like, he deserves it anyway. But man, he's, he's promised to give that to us. Just think beyond this life. Think beyond the treasures of this life. Think beyond the rewards of this life and think to what's coming. Set that as your target and and understand that, that he is calling us to be faithful in all of it. And he will be faithful in return.